Welcome to It Just Takes One. One person, one idea, one moment can change your life. Here's what's coming up on today's show. I remember screaming and then hitting the floor, like I fell on the floor. It just takes one conversation to help somebody get through a loss and if they're grieving. Hello, this is Kelly Watson, and you're listening to It Just Takes One. Several years ago, I remember watching Tig Notaro. Do you know who she is? She's a very funny stand-up comedian. And I remember this act. She was joking about tragedy. In fact, she was joking about the phrase, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. After experiencing a particularly bad run of luck, she had had a cancer diagnosis, Her mother had died in some terrible, horrible accident. And in the midst of it all, her boyfriend broke up with her. (laughs) She said that her friends tried to help her by telling her, it'll be all right. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And Dignitaro, in her very funny, slow cadence, said, but you know, I wasn't sure they were right. She said, I kept imagining my guardian angels up there arguing with God, saying, okay, God, that's enough. She's had enough. And God saying, no, no, I think she can take just a little bit more. I'll give her just a little bit more. (laughs) Well, when I first heard the story our guest Pam Safran will share with you today, I actually remember thinking about that phrase, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Believe me, There is nothing funny about Pam's story, but I am pretty sure that she had some guardian angels helping her along the way. Pam is the author of Listening for Echoes. It's a book about her story, a story of the tragedies that she and her family experienced. It's also a story of strength and perseverance. It's a story about love and loss. And in the end, it's a story about how one woman was able to handle just a little bit more. I don't want to give too much of it away, so I am going to let Pam tell you the rest. Sit back and listen in as she shares her story. Hi, Pam. Welcome to It Just Takes One. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kelly. Oh, it's so great to have you here. For the listeners, Pam Safran is the author of Listening for Echoes, a beautiful story about some experiences she's had in her life. We're going to hear about those today. And I'm really, it's been my pleasure to work with her as as Scripture Publishing published the book, but also in the aftermath of that, getting a chance to work with her on some of the vision that she has going forward. So it's my pleasure to have you on, and I'm excited to share your story. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. I want to start back at the beginning. I really want to give the listeners a good backdrop about who you are, because the, the kind of person you are is so integral to the experiences that you've had. So let's go way back to the beginning. You were born and grew up in Cincinnati. Is that right? That's right. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. My childhood revolved around Cincinnati, Ohio. I went to um, all my schooling uh, before college was from Cincinnati. And I grew up in a very lively 
chaotic house filled with a lot of laughter and with uh, three sisters. We were all 13 months apart. So there were four girls in my family. And then you ended up heading off to college up here in my neck of the woods. (laughs) So I went to college at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs and and I really it was some of the best years of my life those four years being at Skidmore and then I ended up down here in Florida after um, getting my master's in counseling at Rollins College. Excellent and when you were at Skidmore you actually played tennis you were quite an accomplished tennis player. Yes I played line one singles so I was um, their, their number one singles player for four years at Skidmore, I was the New York State champion uh, for Division Three because Skidmore College was a Division Three school, and I was the New York State champion for three years in a row, and then I was a two-time All-American in uh, tennis, which meant I was in the top eight for singles players in Division Three. I wanted to make sure to include that because I think that element of competition and commitment and dedication to something that would get you to those high levels of accomplishment are part of what allowed you to get through what came next. Would you agree? Absolutely. You know, I always think of tennis as um, it, it parallels life in a lot of ways. The strategies that you have to use when you're playing an opponent, uh, the perseverance, the determination that you have to play when you're playing in such a hard match in a tennis match, it really parallels the challenges that you face in life. And as we get more of your story unfolding here, we'll see how that played out in your life. So you became, I got your master's in counseling. And at some point you met a wonderful man named Alan Safran. Tell us about that experience of meeting him. I love this part of the story. Yeah. So what had happened was I had just finished my master's program at counseling in counseling at Rollins and I was boarding a plane uh, to go to my first college reunion at Skidmore. So I was flying from Orlando, Florida, where I currently live, to Saratoga Springs. And this young man walks over towards me, and he's wearing this tweed jacket. And there really wasn't a lot of people on this plane, because it was back when they didn't have to fill the planes <laughs> in order for the plane to go. And there was probably maybe 20 people on and It was to LaGuardia. And he came and sat next to me. And I thought, why, why is this guy sitting next to me? There's a million seats here. And I look over and he's reading this book called The Evolution of Consciousness by Robert Ornstein. And I had just read that in my master's program. And I could, I could barely understand like the first sentence, let alone the book. <laughs> and so I started talking to him and I said, hi, gosh, you're, you're reading that book. I just finished that in my master's program. And he, and I said, are, are you reading that for pleasure? And he looked up and he went, oh yeah, this is my second round of reading it for pleasure. And I just thought, my goodness, who is this person reading this book that I couldn't even make sense of in my master's program? And here he is reading it as for fun. So, um, we started talking and we boarded the plane and, um, and we flew and we talked all the way up to LaGuardia because we sat next to each other. There was, you know, maybe like 18 other people on the flight 
And then I missed my flight coming back on that Sunday. It was a quick turnaround from a Friday to a Sunday. And as they were rewriting my ticket in the, in the, at LaGuardia Airport, back then they would hand you paper tickets, <laughs> um, he walked by. And I turned and I went, oh my gosh, Alan, are you on this flight? And she, the ticket agent handed me the ticket, the paper ticket. And he said, yes, where are you sitting? And I said, oh, I'm sitting in 13F. And he went, oh, I'm in 13G. Wow. So on the flight back, we sat together uh, once again and talked the entire two and a half hours. And this man was incredible. He was so smart. He was too smart for me. (laughs) (laughs) But really wonderful and very um, compassionate because the reason he had gone up to for this quick weekend trip was to go see his father who had had hip replacement surgery. Hmm. And, um, and so I thought, wow, he's got really good values, really good morals, very family oriented. And he had told me how he was a young, you know, he just finished his residency at university of Virginia. He was an ENT surgeon and a physician, and he um, just joined a practice in Orlando and was just getting started. And people used to call him Doogie Hauser because he looked literally about 20 years old, even though he was older than that. He was um, in his late 20s when I met him. Or actually, maybe he was in his early 30s when I met him. So, I love that story because I, I often say to people that people come into our lives when we need them. And there are those serendipitous meetings that had you just turned the other direction, he would have walked by. Exactly. I mean, it it was such a chance. It was such a, it was such a moment that could have been passed over so easily. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. So you eventually got married and he was establishing his practice and you started having a family and you've now got three children. I have three children. I have one graduating um, actually in May in two months um, from college. He goes to Yale university and I'm so excited. Hillary Clinton is the commencement speaker. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. So she, because she, they always have um, someone who went to Yale. So she went to Yale Law School. Mm-hmm. And last year they had Theo Epstein from Moneyball mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he went to Yale. And then the year before they had Joe Biden. So mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to his um, graduation, which is May 21st from Yale. And then I, my second one is a sophomore at Columbia University. He's pre-med, following in his father's footsteps. He is an EMT. He's the Columbia EMT also. And so he sleeps near an ambulance every third Friday of the month. <laughs> <laughs> and then my third is my youngest, and her name is Ella. And she just started high school. She's in ninth grade at the same school, it's called Trinity Prep here in Winter Park, Florida, and the same school that her brothers went to and graduated from. Wonderful. So as you were starting your family, the the young years of the family, you really had um, what from the outside was really a, a perfect family. Everything was going very well. And, you know, you were busy with raising three kids, but there came a moment when things were turned and perfection sort of shattered. I want to talk about that moment and start that from wherever you want. If you want to start it from your mother or Alan, whichever direction you you remember it. 
So for us, life was really perfect if there is such a thing as perfect. We had a wonderful marriage. He had a growing practice. My three, three kids were thriving. Uh, I had a son that was just starting. Miles was just starting his senior year of high school. Nathaniel, who we call Nat, was starting his sophomore year of high school. And then Ella was in fifth grade. So she was still in middle school. And my mother lived with us. And my mother was one of my biggest supporters throughout my entire life. Like I had mentioned, she had had four girls in five years. And she was a very strong mother. And what I mean by that is she wanted us to be independent. She wanted us to be self-sufficient. And so she had us all specialized in one thing. And what she did was she found what we were good at. So when we were younger, she would look for what each daughter was, was good at, what she showed promise in. So for my oldest sister named Marianne, she would like to draw and she was really good at math. So, and she was a beautiful artist. So my mother thought, you know what, she's probably going to be an architect. So she really guided her along that way. And now she, you know, is a professor at Harvard in the Graduate School of Design. She's been there over 20 years and she, she's one of the prominent female architects on the East Coast. Uh, she does quite a bit of work, um, you know, up in, she's from Boston. She lives in Cambridge. And then my second sister was very, um, she would always debate my parents. She was always very argumentative. And so she became a judge. She's a judge in Cincinnati, Ohio. My third sister, Carolyn, was very, very analytical and very, we used to call her Judge Judy. (laughs) And she is now at Georgetown Law School. She works in the admissions office. So... And I love being with people. I was very compassionate. So my mother was very much a, um, a rock for us girls growing up. Well, in the last 15, 10 to 15 years, she lived with me and my kids and with Alan because Alan would be on call a lot. And I had these three kids and she was incredibly supportive and helpful. Well, one day, um, I came home and I couldn't wake her up off the sofa. And I called my husband and I said, Alan, I I think something's wrong with, um, with my mom. She thinks she has a sinus infection. Should I come bring her to you? And he said, absolutely not, Pam. She's in her eighties. You need to go to the emergency room. It's probably something more serious than a sinus infection. Cause remember Alan was an ear, nose, throat doctor, ENT. So I took her to the emergency room and they did a quick CAT scan and they realized she was bleeding in her brain. So they quickly transported her to the main hospital where they diagnosed her with a brain aneurysm. She was 82 at the time. So two weeks prior to uh, her, this brain aneurysm this day, my husband had been complaining of a stomach ache. And he had been doing some research thinking, oh gosh, he may have an ulcer, but you know, the stomach and he had lost a couple of pounds and he thought, well, you know, something, something's not right. I probably need to go get a CT scan of my stomach. He had never been sick. He had missed two days of work of 21 years as a surgeon, two days. And so my mother had this emergency brain surgery And she laid in a coma in the ICU at our hospital 
And three days later, my husband goes to see his friend who's a GI doctor here in town. My husband treated him and all his family and his kids and, and they diagnosed him with stage four terminal cancer, pancreatic cancer. So as I was in the ICU with my mother and one of my sisters, hoping that my mother was going to wake up from this brain surgery, my husband called me and said, I got the results back. I'm a dead man walking. I have six months to live, get the kids, get them home. Now we need to have a family meeting. And so, uh, talk about that moment. You actually got that call when you were in the ICU room with your mom. Mm-hmm. And obviously your your mind was on your mom and what was happening and you know sort of coming to terms with whatever was going on there. What do you remember about that call? What do you remember that moment being like for you? I remember screaming. I remember screaming and then hitting the floor. Like I fell on the floor. And I think my sister Caroline was with me at the time and Ella was there because someone had brought Ella home from her school and my kids would come home. They would come to the hospital to see grandma. So I remember Caroline and Ella being there. I remember hitting the floor, like the cold floor of this hospital room. And I remember crawling under my mom's bed, her hospital bed and screaming mom, you got to wake up. You got to help me. I, I need help because my mother loved my husband. She had great respect for him and she just thought the world of him. And I couldn't believe that she wasn't there to help me because she had been there so much for me in the past and for my sisters. And she was such a wise person, such, had such sage advice for all of us when we were meeting challenges. And of all the times that I needed her, this was it. So I do remember crawling under her hospital bed and then I think I was in shock and I remember someone lifting me up and putting me in a wheelchair and Carolyn wheeled me out of the hospital to go home, to go meet Alan. And I I read the story and, and have talked to you about the story, but that moment right there always stands out for me because I think it's certainly something that we all dread or have some level of fear about. It's something we all relate to that, that fear that something could happen to somebody that we love. And here you are in the moment having two of those um, with two people that you, you truly love. So the days that followed, he said in that moment, six months to live. So what, what happened? What was the strategy? What did you do? How did you conquer this? Well, you know, I looked at it in a way that I would look at a tennis match. I had two of my loved ones dying, basically dying. I had three kids at home that I had to keep on a normal routine. I had a senior in high school who was looking, who was being recruited by, you know, big name schools because he was number one in the country in speech and debate. And so I needed to keep everything as normal and structured as at home because everything else was spinning out of control. And so I had a lot of support in the community. I had a lot of friends. My husband had treated a lot of families here in central Florida. And so I, and I had a lot of friends support me, but every day was a battle. Every day I would get up and I'd put on 
basically the same outfit, a t-shirt and jeans. And I would go fight to keep Alan alive and keep my mother alive while she was in a coma. My husband eventually went through five rounds of chemotherapy and it stopped working. And so that's when um, prior to the chemotherapy, Alan had talked to me about dendritic cells. I didn't know what a dendrite was. And so I started doing research on dendritic cells and realized that it's an immunotherapy. It's basically taking your um, your white, white blood cells out of your body, re-engineering them in a lab, and then putting them back in your body to fight your own tumors. And so I found a little lab out of Washington, D.C. called NW Bio Labs, and my sister helped me. And we fought... Um, Margaret Hamburg at the FDA, and I got him a 24-hour emergency compassionate use trial. First, I got it to MD Anderson, which was down here in Orlando, Florida. It was part of one of our hospitals. I knew um, Dr. Mark Rowe, who was head of MD Anderson. His wife was a good friend of mine, and Alan had treated his entire family. They have three girls. And Mary helped me get the trial in MD Anderson for pancreatic cancer patients. And my sisters helped me also, Marion and Carolyn. But then when it came time for Alan to, to get the trial for himself, we all these FDA rules and someone else had ha- already had their dendritic cells put in them. So we had to wait two weeks, but time was of the essence for Alan. So we got him his own trial. That's when I really fought Margaret Hamburg and got his own trial. and. You know, it was too late for him because when he was diagnosed, he had a five centimeter mass in his pancreas and 34 tumors in his liver. So it had metastasized all over his body. And But I, I fought tooth and nail to keep him here. I did everything I could. And, you know, I won a lot of battles, but I really didn't win the war which was keeping him alive. It goes back to that mindset that you developed through the competitions and through the, the competitive upbringing you had with tennis mm-hmm. and that, that ability to clarify the focus mm-hmm. and to not stop, you know, to keep fighting to the end. And what was your mindset in that time? How, what were you telling yourself that was allowing you to, to go the extra step and and fight for what you believed would be something that could help. I just felt like there's got to be a way. If we can put a man on the moon, why can't we find help for my husband? My husband was young. He was 52. He was vibrant. He was healthy. And I mean, the week prior to his stage four terminal diagnosis, he had run three miles. I couldn't even keep up with him. So I thought... There's got to be a solution. There's got to be a way to keep him here. But, you know, in the long run, I was I was fighting a battle that I wasn't going to win. The mindset that I had was of perseverance and to never give up. And that's what I was taught playing tennis when I grew up. I was an academy kid. I grew up in a tennis academy with Nick Politeri. And we we had to learn how to win and we had to learn how to lose. And we felt like every time you went on, we were taught that every time you go on that tennis court, you have to figure out what your opponent's weaknesses and your, and what their strengths are. 
And so this was a whole new opponent for me, this cancer. I, I didn't know much about cancer. I didn't know anything about the pancreas or dendritic cells, but I quickly learned like in a tennis match, you quickly learn what are the weaknesses and what are the strengths of this opponent and how am I going to beat this opponent? And so I, I approached it like a tennis match. Like if, if one person moves this way, I'm going to move that way. If I, you have to be very accommodating and flexible in some ways, but at the same time, you have to be very strong and determined in other ways. You can't take no for an answer. And that was one thing I, I fought tooth and nail for that trial for him and I got it. And, you know, it didn't help him because he was too far gone, but I wasn't going to give up. And that's, that was what I learned with my tennis. You don't give up. You just keep trying. And if you get, if you fall down, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and you try again. You just keep trying until you get the results that you want. And, you know, my mother, have lived for four more years with the brain aneurysm. She eventually woke up, which was incredible, absolutely incredible because I had to stay on her medical team at the same time while I stayed on Alan's medical team and then had these three kids at home. So I was juggling a lot of balls, you know, is an understatement. And I think that's where the tennis, the perseverance and the not giving up and assembling a team, being part of a team, really helps that that kind of mindset really helps because you can't do it all not one person can do it all it takes a team yeah absolutely and you have to be ready and willing and able to ask for that help and alan did too you know he he was in a a different place obviously this is his life that everyone's fighting for what was his mindset during this time you know alan he was such an incredible he was so one of a kind just an incredible person he was so compassionate and sensitive towards others. He never wanted to impose. That was always his big thing. And he knew that he could see that I wanted to fight this and that that would bring peace to me. But in his mindset, he was, was going to die. He felt like this, he had been given a terminal diagnosis and that he really wanted palliative care from the get-go. But he saw what a fighter I was for him, so he let me take over and, and do what I needed to do because he realized that he wasn't going to be here in six months. And so I was going to be left with the three kids. And if this is what brought me peace in fighting his cancer, then he let me, let me be and let me do what I wanted to do. That's how he was. He was so accommodating and gracious and, and sensitive and just, he was just an amazing human being. Yeah. Yeah. You can hear it even in your voice as you speak about him, just that, that love that you, you clearly shared with him. How about the children? You know, they were at pretty pivotal moments in their lives as well. And watching what was happening to their father, their grandmother, watching their mother fight and, and keep everything in, in forward motion. Mm-hmm. How did you take care of them? How did, how did they handle? The- well, we, every, every night after we would collapse into bed. We would all talk about one thing that we were grateful for, for that day. And 
one thing that we appreciated because we had to see the silver lining in the challenges that we were going through at the time. So whether it was them finishing their English homework or getting that paper in or someone handing me a cup of hot coffee, we had to be grateful and appreciative because otherwise we weren't going to be able to get through what we got through. And I think my kids realized, especially my oldest, because he was a senior and a lot of people at that time had senioritis. They were very burned out. And Miles just really rose to the occasion. He realized that his friends were were burned out and they were kind of, you know, not taking school very seriously. Yet he went on and won six national tournaments in speech and debate. And I think he did that to prove that they, we will move forward. We never move on from when you lose a loved one and it's very tragic and unexpected, but you move forward. You're, you're a completely different person. You look at life in a very different way. You're forever changed. And I think what my kids experienced with their father and what they had with their father will always stay with them. They had great relationships with their dad. Um, and I, they're, they're his legacy. So thank goodness they're here that, that they can continue on, especially my second one who is now pre-med and is walking in his father's footsteps. My husband went to Columbia undergraduate and to medical school. And that's where my second one is. He's at Columbia as an undergraduate. He's walking the same hallways that my husband walked as an undergraduate. And it's a beautiful thing to see how life continues to move forward. And we keep going because we want to honor my late husband. We want to honor his legacy. So beautiful. And, and there are some ways that you're starting to do that too. We're going to talk about those in a moment. But I, I want to go back to that time at the end. Um, you, there came a moment when, when you knew, you both knew that you were losing the war and there were preparations being made. And I, and I know Alan was very concerned about making sure you were taken care of. Can you talk a little bit about that time and some of the things that he was trying to make sure were taken care of? Right. He knew he was going fast. And so I think it was maybe about two weeks before he passed, he was laying in a hospital bed at our hospital here, Florida hospital. And he said, Pam, I need you to go home and get a notepad. We need to go over where everything is. And, and I said, no, honey, we don't need to do that now. And he insisted. So I went home and I got a notepad and I came back and he, he wanted to make sure that me and the kids were going to be taken care of. He wanted to make sure we were going to stay on his health care at his practice. It was something that as a, you know, as a physician and a partner in a practice, he had this great health care that me and the three kids were on and he wanted to make sure we still had health care. So he had me call one of his partners and um, who we go way back with, you know, we've celebrated birthdays, done vacations with, and, um, and the partner said, you know, when he dies, you're going to have to go on Cobra. You're going to have to, um, you know, uh, you'll have extended benefits as a widow, but you aren't going to be able to stay on our health care. And I, Alan never, I never told Alan that because he wanted me to stay on their health care and, and 
pay the premiums, which I was so happy to do. I was willing to do. And I, I rec, I suggested that, but they still, they didn't, they didn't care. They, they cut us off. And, um, he wanted to make sure that I was going to be able to pay for all the education for the kids because, you know, when he died, we lost a very large income as a surgeon and he wanted to make sure I was going to be able to be taken care of at that family meeting that we had when his first day of diagnosis, he said, there are three things that I want that are important to me. And one is that the kids stay Jewish. Two is that you are able to handle all the expenses and take care of the house and be able to put the kids through college and graduate programs and whatever they want to do. And then he said, and the third is I want you to be happy again. I may not be here, but I want you to be happy. And so I'm honoring his three wishes. The first wish was for us to stay, the kids to stay Jewish. Now remember, Ella was only 10. And the boys had already had bar mitzvahs because I had, I had a 17 and a 15 year old and we had very large bar mitzvahs for them. So what we did was where his funeral was, it was called Congregation of Ohev Shalom. And we, I converted, I um, went through the whole process of converting to Judaism. So my daughter could have a bat mitzvah at the temple where she, where Alan was buried, his funeral. And so after he died, Ella went to Hebrew school there and I converted and we had a beautiful bat mitzvah in the year she turned 13 in April. And um, that was two years ago. And so I really wanted to make sure that we, we stayed Jewish because that was important to him. The second one was with the partners and that's in my book. And that was really challenging because we needed to, I needed to be bought out from his partnership because I didn't want to be involved with them anymore, but they didn't have a buyout. So I had to, I hired someone locally who um, helped me um, fight them and get what was deserved and owed to me and my three kids. And we got it. We got bought out and it wasn't easy. (laughs) Another (laughs) challenge, but, um, but we did it and we got through it and we won and uh, the good guys win in the long run. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, um, and so my kids were able to go to schools that they wanted to go to and, um, and I didn't have to compromise as a result of that because we got what was owed to us and what my husband worked so hard for 20 years for. I don't know if it's always the good guys that win, although in this case it was, but it's certainly the people that are the most tenacious and persevere yeah. and who are willing to stand up for what is what is right and what is due and and to to persevere through that and and that again goes back to that core piece of you able and willing and capable of fighting for for your kids right Teresa was so funny, my lawyer who's now my best friend. Um, she, um, she's the one I hired. What had happened was we had a a family friend here in town who is the godfather of my oldest and he would come and visit Alan every day. And after that healthcare telephone 
call with one of the partners, I realized I was going to be in big trouble when he died, that they were going to cut me off at the knees. And so my, our friend called that night and he said, how's it going? And I said, you know, it's not going well. I think I'm going to need a lawyer that that's going to help me after Alan dies. Cause this, this isn't, this isn't going to go well in the end. And I said, do you know any lawyers that could help me? And cause he was a lawyer himself. And he said, no, I can't stand any of the lawyers. They're all jerks. And I said, come on, you've got to know somebody. You have a big law practice here in winter park. And he said, actually, I do know somebody. I have a lawyer who um, she's a female and she's our only female partner in our practice. And she put herself through law school many years ago as a single mom with two babies while they were in diapers by playing online poker. <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh, what is her name? She's hired. <laughs> and, that, and I said, this, I, I need to know this person. <laughs> She's, she sounds incredible. And that was Teresa Phillips who became my lawyer and my confidant the entire battle against the partners and getting what was owed to us because I couldn't do it alone. No one does anything in this life alone. And it really takes a village to, to get things done. We don't live in vacuums. We live in communities where there is support and help and advice and feedback. I, you can't do anything alone. I I feel. And you know, that really goes to the third point, um, Alan's third wish for you to, to be happy again and talk a little bit about how you have worked to do that in the years since he's been gone. Well, so I wrote this book, Listening for Echoes, and it took me three years. And that was one of a very cathartic thing for me. As I mentioned before, we journaled. I journaled a lot because being a counselor, we journaled. We were taught to journal and it was something we passed on to our clients. And when Alan died, my I could have easily handed this journal to my kids because I also journaled about Alan and what kind of father he was. And the kids were young when he died. And I really wanted them to know what kind of father they had. But then I realized that my story was much larger than my journal. That what me and my three kids went through is a universal phenomenon called grief and loss. And so that's why I started writing the book, because I wanted to open the dialogue for conversations for people to talk about grief and loss. Loss can come in many forms. Ours came in a very tragic and unexpected ways, but there is no measuring stick for loss. Loss can can mean many different things to different people. Loss can be the loss of a relationship that you have with your childhood best friend. Loss can be, can come in the form of losing a pet. It can be losing the grandmother that raised you. There is no measuring stick for loss. So I wanted to get my story out there to show that we can move beyond loss in our lifetime. We can find meaning and hope in our life. And That was something that was very important to me. And that's brought a lot of happiness and joy to me, getting my message out there. um, Because I think if I just help one person with my book, then it was all worthwhile in writing my book. 
Yeah. And I, and I absolutely love that you have this mission now to open the conversation about grief and about loss because it is the big white elephant in the room, right? People, we all experience loss. Just like you said, we all have it in some way, shape or form in our life. It's inevitable. And yet we struggle to deal with it, not just personally when we go through it ourselves, but how to help others who are grieving. And, you know, I, I often talk to people who, who say they don't even know what to do. You know, somebody's had a terrible loss or a tragedy and you really want to help, but you sort of feel completely lost on how to do that. Can you share some of the experiences you have, maybe some ideas that would help somebody who just wants to know how to help somebody else who's dealing with it? Right. So I, I think that um, since it is the elephant in the room and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable for people. I mean, I would have been prior to what I went through. So I think the biggest thing is showing up. You have to, uh, when you're, when you're grieving the loss of a loved one, you don't want to put any more responsibility on them by saying, okay, what can I do for you? You don't want them to have to think about what, what they're going to give you an assignment you just need to show up and be there and be a great listener. And because the person who's going through this is going to want to vent. They're going to be angry. They're going to be bitter. They're going to say, why me? What, why did this happen to me? And they need somebody, they need a sounding board. So if you just show up, be a great listener, that's one thing I would suggest to people. Another thing is that if you have a story of the, of the loved one that was lost, people love that. I loved hearing stories about Alan. And I, heard, I still continue to hear so many stories about Alan because he treated so many. He was a doctor here in Central Florida, and he treated so many people, and he was so beloved. I mean, we had 700 people at his funeral. And... All his patients just loved him. And so I love hearing the stories about Alan. It just makes me feel good that he hasn't been forgotten and that he won't be forgotten. So if you have a story about the loved one, that is always really just a wonderful feeling for the person who is grieving. And then I guess just, you know, being there as a friend and being supportive and being, and don't go away. Like after the, after his funeral, a lot of people kind of just fell off the cliff. Like you don't hear from them again. And they say things like, oh, just call me if you need me. Well, I'm not gonna call anybody if I need them. That's the last thing I wanna think about. So be there after a couple of months, six months after the funeral, a year, check in with the person and see how they're doing. That always means so much to the person who is grieving. I, I love that you said those things, you know, the, especially the one about sharing the stories, mm-hmm. because I think our, our awkwardness is, is there and we almost don't want to bring the person up because we don't want to make the other person feel sad. So even if we had a story, I think sometimes people just don't share it because they don't want to bring up the name and make somebody feel bad. And what you're saying is it's the opposite. Exactly. It's the opposite. The person wants to hear about the loved one that they lost. They want to know that that person is not forgotten, that that person had, has a legacy and they want them to live on. And, you know, the other thing is mention that person's name, 
keep saying that person's name so they're not forgotten because they they had meaning and purpose in their lives and it's important not to forget them. Yeah, great, great piece of advice. So you've got this book and you're starting to go out and do some speaking about how to get the conversation going about loss, telling your story and sharing some of the things you've learned along the way. What other things are you looking to do? What do you, what do you see in the future as you continue this new mission? Well, I love to think about getting my message out there about we can talk about grief and loss. It is not the elephant in the room. No one is immune. We're all going to go through it at some point in our lives if we haven't already. Um, I would, I'm starting a scholarship for, I was fortunate in the sense that I fought for everything that we have and my kids were able to go to schools that they wanted to go to. But not everybody is in that situation when they lose a parent or a loved one to cancer and they become financially strapped. And so I am starting the Saffron Education Memorial Fund, where I want to help kids who have gone through a similar situation that my kids went through and help them with their education needs. Because if a parent If they lose a parent who was their main source of income to cancer and they have to compromise their future and their dreams and goals, I want to help those families that are going through that with this fund. So I'm in the process of setting up a Saffron Education Memorial Fund. And I'm also in the process of writing a script for my book. I'd love to see it in a film or a series of some sort. So I've got a lot on my plate. I got a lot to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, those missions come to those who can handle it. And, and (laughs) certainly the kind of person that you are and your ability to conquer so many things is, is going to hold you well as you continue creating (laughs) these new avenues. And I think, you know, obviously I didn't know Alan, but when I hear you speak about how you're going to help other families and just knowing him through your eyes and the compassionate man that he was, the family man that he was. I can only imagine that he's smiling and and watching you do this and that he would be so proud of that. Thank you. Thank you. So I will wrap things up here and give the listeners a chance to think through some of the things that you've shared. Uh, Right now, you're just in the process of setting up that fund. uh, So we'll keep them posted on when that's actually available, if anybody's interested in donating to that. But before we go, I like to ask my listeners about the, the phrase, it just takes one, the name of this podcast, because I'm always fascinated to hear what it means to each person. It means something different. And so Pam, I'll, I'll ask you that question as we finish things up here. What does it just takes one mean to you? I think... It means it just takes one conversation to get started, to talk about death, grief, loss. Just takes one conversation to help somebody get through a loss and if they're grieving. And hopefully my book and this interview helps one person deal with what they're going through in their life with loss. It's just one conversation that could change someone's life. It could change their attitude, how they perceive the world, 
the next decision that they make, the next choice that they have. If my book does that, then it was all worthwhile in, in writing this book that took me three years. And I think that is my just one, just one conversation. I love that. Well, this has been just one conversation that I know is going to make a difference. So I appreciate you being here. And listeners, if you're interested in purchasing Pam's book, it's available on Amazon. And it is Listening for Echoes by Pam Safran. Pam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. I hope you enjoyed hearing Pam's story and that you were as inspired by her journey as I have been. I don't think we ever know exactly how well we'll handle things until we're put to the test. But I hope that if I ever face anything as serious as Pam did, that I'll remember how she kept focused and how she kept fighting to help her husband, her mother, and her family through it all. I'm also touched by Pam's mission to help people talk about grief and loss, to bring those conversations out into the open. She said, it just takes one conversation to help somebody get through. And yet, I think we have all had those moments where we've shied away from those conversations. It can feel awkward. And sometimes I think we're at a loss about how to help someone get through. Maybe it's just easier not to reach out or not say anything because we fear upsetting the other person or saying the wrong thing. To help us with that awkwardness, Pam gave some great advice. She encouraged us to have that conversation. She said, reach out and do something. Don't ask them to tell you what they need. Simply reach in and offer your assistance. Whether it's a phone call, a card, or dropping food off at their house, don't back away. Let the person know you're there and that you care. She also suggested sharing your personal stories of the person who's gone. It does help to keep their memory alive and to know that they were loved. And when somebody talks about them, it helps us stay connected to them even though they're gone. I know I enjoy that when someone shares a story about my mom. It always makes me smile to hear that she made a difference in someone's life. Pam's greatest message is to keep talking. Through open dialogue and willingness to engage in the conversation, we can help people who are working their way through grief. And you never know. Yours might just be the one conversation that helps them see that there is a life after loss. That wraps up this episode of It Just Takes One, and now I turn it back to you, because it's your turn to go out and be the one. Thanks for listening to It Just Takes One. Stay tuned for our next episode where I interview Julie Wilcox. She is the general manager of Fitness Quest 10 and the director of everything. (laughs) We talk about how to maintain harmony and balance in life, even when life gets really busy. That episode is coming soon. 